Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of Quark power meters and other kick-ass bicycle data systems. Quark power meters, collector, and shock whiz help you ride faster, improve your performance, and share your passion. Find out more at Quark.com. Welcome back, dear listeners, to another episode of Fast Talk. I am Kaylee Fretz, senior editor here at Bella News, and I'm sitting across the table, as always, from Coach Trevor Connor. How are you, Trevor? I'm good, Kaylee. How are you doing? I am excellent. Uh, we have two extra special guests in the room today. We have Bella News tech editor, Dan Cavallari. Hi, Kaylee. Hi, Dan. And... Kristen, your uh, your title has changed like nine times in the last two years, so I don't actually know what you are. Uh, but Kristen works here too, and <laughs> Kristen is also here to talk tech stuff. Hi, Kristen. Hey, Kaylee. Today's subject, uh, and again, we, as you've probably figured out, Fast Talk does occasionally step back from physiology, and we let Trevor's voice have a bit of a of a, of a break. So today is one of those days. We're going to be talking about. Well, tech stuff. So the big question we're trying to answer today is what do you need in your garage to be a bike racer? And there's a whole lot of pieces to this puzzle. Uh, We're going to be talking about the difference between a training bike and a race bike, even if that's the same bike. We're going to be talking about gear and clothing and things like that, where you can get the most bang for your buck. Uh, And then we'll talk about race-specific setup of your race bike, which, well, that's, that's a bit of a rabbit hole that we are happily going to go all the way down so let's make you fast dan do we need two bikes do i need a training bike and a race bike let's dive right into this no no you don't uh it's always great to have two bikes but given the the way things are priced these days for most of us that's just not realistic uh and it's entirely possible to make your training bike into your race bike so the money is probably better spent on smart race upgrades anyway. From a coaching standpoint, I don't care how much you work at it. You can't get the exact same setup on a training bike as or on two, two separate bikes. There's going to be differences right down to the fact that if you're riding one a lot, the saddle's going to get worked in where the other one's going to have a, a newer saddle that might give you some saddle sores. Last thing you want to be doing is training on one bike and then in an important race, hop onto a bike that your body's not familiar with. Yeah, I think the saddle is a is a major point there. For just for for reference, so pros will often travel with their own saddle. So you'll see pros cruising through the airport, going to a race in Europe somewhere, and they have you know they have a helmet strapped to their their pack, they have their shoes with them, and they have their saddle like strapped to the outside of their backpack. And that's that's basically for the exact same reason that you're talking about. You know, you can set up you can set up handlebars and hoods and stuff you know pretty close, but saddle becomes a very personal item after not too long. And so they often just bring that with them. And and that's a big reason why if you are going to do the two bike thing, I would just move saddle, whole seat post and saddle in between the two. I mean, hopefully you would have the same size seat post and it'd be relatively easy, but just be really careful about the height. You, if you have that pedal to saddle distance, be even just three, four, five millimeters different between two bikes, you can start causing yourself knee problems. You can start causing injury. Be super careful. 
Well, and a lot of the pros, they're riding the exact same bike. Every component is exactly the same where a lot of us, if we have multiple bikes, it's because we have an older bike that we've just never got rid of. And we're using that as, you know, our training bike or our racing bike still. So it's even harder when you're not using the, like the exact same frame and every single component. I want to dig into this a little bit more, actually. So let's, I know that the first thing we said here was that you don't need two bikes, but you know, a lot of us do, a lot of us have an old bike. Like you say, you you have an old race bike or just a bike that you, that you're not using for racing anymore, but you decided to hold on to. How long do you think you need? Like if you're going to use the old bike for say base miles all winter, when it's all nasty outside, how long do you need to sort of make sure that you're used to the new fancy shiny bike? for a race. So like, let's, let's say my, let's say my first race of the season is, uh, end of March. When do I need to get on that, on that race bike? And I'm looking at Trevor because he's, (laughs) (laughs) he's our, our, the physiologist in the room. So I don't know if you want me to share this story, but I did make that mistake once of switching to my race bike, uh, two days before a race. And the short version of the story was my knee got so bad. I ended up going off the road and crashing chasing down the field, caught the field. And as I was getting ready for the final sprint, a a bumblebee flew into my booty and stung me like 20 times. (laughs) It was one of the worst races of my life. Which booty are we talking about? That's a good it, question, Dan. Yeah, I don't Which booty are we talking about, Trevor? I just remember taking it off very quickly. (laughs) But that was possibly one of the worst race experiences of my life. And I spent three weeks with a, a knee that was inflamed because of that mistake. So you do need to take that time to get used to the race bike. And I'm going to say it's probably two to three weeks before you, you try a race, try some, something that stressful on, on your body. Well, and, and beyond physiology and your own body, you need to make sure your bike is set up correctly. And that takes some time that, you know, if there's, tweaks that you need to make when you get on your, your race bike, you don't want to be doing that the day before the race or even two days before the races. You want to make sure that happens two weeks in advance so that you know what your bike is going to feel like, you know, you address these problems before they come up last minute. Best way to piss off a bike shop mechanic is to come in last minute and say, Hey, I got a race tomorrow. Can you rebuild my wheel? They're not, no, it's not, no, a, I cannot. it's not a great situation. Uh, no, and if you're your own mechanic, you're not going to be happy. You know, you should be preparing yourself mentally the night before, not, not rebuilding your wheel. Right. The mechanics pissed off until they hand you the bill and then you're pissed off and they're really happy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, this is the, uh, the 200, dollar 24-hour turnaround surcharge right if you have two bikes that's very much a a great convenience but we're going to talk today about getting your training bike that you that you ride daily to train obviously uh making some smart changes and upgrades to make it your race day bike and that usually starts by making sure that you have a reliable bike that can do both so you want your your bike to be appropriate to the level of racing you're doing for most of us, that means a carbon bike. Uh, it means pretty aggressive race geometry. But when you're out training, do you want to be on your expensive carbon hoops? Well, no, you don't. Probably not. Because you're going you're gonna to destroy them more quickly. And I mean, yeah, carbon is definitely more durable than it's been in years past. Uh, a lot of companies are saying that their they're really expensive carbon race hoops are also great for every day. That may be true, but you're going to destroy them a lot quicker. So step one for your training bike is to have a good set of training wheels. My recommendation on this front is to have something that's, uh, you know, an aluminum set of wheels. Doesn't have to be deep profile, anything like that. Just something that's pretty rugged. And probably clinchers because you're gonna get a flat at some point. 
and you don't want to be struggling with a tubular tire on your training ride. You just call Uber. Right. Well, you do. Money bags <laughs> over here. Uh, I, I thumb it. I thumb it home. Back uh, of the pickup truck. Yeah. Yeah. On that uh, same tack, you know, you you got your your durable race, or excuse me, your durable training wheels. You're also probably going to want some durable training tires. There's really no point on in training on race tires because you're probably going to shred through them pretty quickly. What uh, about the notion that I should be sort of I should know what my race tire is going to feel like? Well, you know, that's that's a few days before the race. That's the week before the race. Yeah, definitely throw your 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 race gear on and, and give it a go. And we can we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But for everyday training, no, you don't need to be on your race tires. You don't need to be on your race wheels. Uh, you're just going to thrash that stuff more quickly than than you want to, and that stuff's pricey. And you have to remember, as a tire gets older, it gets softer. That's when it starts picking up junk off of the road, and that's when you start getting flats. So when I see I see racers all the time who race and ride on the same tires, and they're the people who are constantly getting flats in the races. So you want to make sure on your what race wheels, you have fairly new tires to, to help prevent any sort of flats during the race. It's also nice with your, your more durable training setup, it's typically heavier. So when you're training, you're training on a heavier bike. So then when you swap things over to your race setup, it's, it just feels lighter, faster. And it's always a nice feeling to start a race feeling like that. Definitely feels nicer. May only be a placebo, really, right. mostly. But it, it is, it is kind of nice, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's like swimmers uh, refusing to shave for months on end before a major meet, mm-hmm. uh, except less hairy. So better to be a cyclist. <laughs> Don't, don't bring back those bad memories. <laughs> yeah. Kristen, do you have hairy legs, Kristen? Back in the <laughs> I used to fight with my coaches every single year on that. Yeah. Like high school girls, and you're not allowed to shave your legs. That was horrible. That's kind of a uh, – yeah. It was pretty bad. That would be the same as if <laughs> a high school boy had to shave the, his legs. <laughs> but the change you feel when you first jump in the water on a taper meet is incredible. So hmm. it – as much as it sucked, it really did work mentally at right. least. So basically the same concept behind yeah. running big, fat, you know, Conti Gator skins the rest of the, the year and then throwing on a nice light tubular or a nice light, you know, cotton walled clincher or something like that. Yeah. The other uh, recommendation I would make for your training wheels, and this might be a little polarizing, is uh, now with the, the proliferation of uh, road tubeless, I say go tubeless, it seals up small stuff. You're going to spend less time on the side of the road. Definitely a polarizing opinion. I've, I've had some good luck with road tubeless. I'd say it's worth it. Garbage take, Dan. That's a garbage take. Garbage take. Yep. Okay. No, I actually, I struggle with road tubeless. Uh, I've had some good experiences as well. And I think if you're going to run bigger tires, if you're going to run like a 28, 30, 32 kind of tire, if your bike will take a tire like that, then you can really consider it because then you can take them off road and you can go hit the road and stuff like that. Uh, for a 25 millimeter tire, I don't know, is it worth the... The problem is you flat, okay, let's say you flat and it doesn't seal, which happens pretty frequently actually uh, because it's a big hole. And then what do you do? Then you have to like deal with this tire full of goo and a valve. You take the valve out as opposed to just it takes me three and a half minutes to fix a road flat. So It would still take you three and a half minutes to fix a (laughs) tubeless road flat. But I'll be covered in goo. I'll be covered in goo. Anyway, as you said, polarizing. Yes. uh, We'll just agree to disagree on this one. (laughs) Fair enough. I'm going to take a bit of a different take on it. And uh, what I always recommend to my athletes, training isn't about speed. It really doesn't matter how fast you go. And I agree with your what you say, that when you put those race wheels on and they're really light with a good tire, it feels amazing. So on your training wheels, I think you should 
pretty much put something close to a garden hose for a tire <laughs> that you know is going to resist anything. And then I'm actually a big fan of putting Mr. Tuffy's in there. It's going to slow you down. It doesn't feel great, but especially on those cold days, the last thing you want to be doing is sitting there with exposed hands trying to change a, a flat. And I've gotten through whole winters without a single flat when you, you have those thicker tires, the Mr. Tuffy's in there, and it's heavy as can be, but you're not going to flat. So Mr. Tuffy, just in case our listeners are not aware, is essentially a, it's like a Kevlar strip thing that you stick on the inside of a clincher tire as an extra extra puncture protection basically the other way to do that and i've actually my commuter bike is set up like this you can cut the bead off an old smaller tire and stick that on the inside and then you essentially just have a double thick tire so it's maybe not quite as good it depends how worn out the old tire is but i mean i've had i've had that system on my commuter bike for four years and i've never flatted it riding around boulder so that's the other way to do it if you're cheap you don't want to spend like ten dollars on mr tuffy's just take an old pair of tires cut the uh cut the bead off stick them inside a new tire I would just carry an extra tube. Like, <laughs> why go through all that trouble? Just carry an extra tube. It doesn't take that long. To yeah, but it's really cold sometimes. I think, you know, yeah. if you if you train in a cold place all winter, you're doing base miles. I, I can see how you would definitely, definitely not want to. I live in Canada. I'm going to do everything to make sure I don't get a flat yeah. when it's negative 20 out there. <laughs> yes. Anyway, let's return back to where we were before that little... uh a little side chat back to training bikes. So Dan, you were kind of running through what your training bike should look like. And I think a lot of this is going to make, you know, it's going to make sense if you've been in the sport for a little while, but we still want to make it absolutely clear what, what a training bike should look like, particularly versus a race bike. So beyond, uh, wheels and tires, your things like, if it's a big race coming up, you know, things like brake pads, drive train, bar tape, you know, those things that get worn out while you're training, you're going to want to address those before you, you hop into a race. But when you're training, it's fine if those things start to get a little worn down, but you don't want to go down so far down the hole of neglect that, you know, you're, you're having shifting issues and you can't stop on that descent. I mean, you, you want your bike, your bike to be safe. So continually check your brake pads, keep your drivetrain clean. And, and that's going to come up a lot. Keep your bike clean, whether you're training or a race day, keep your bike clean. I'm horrible about this. Horrible. I'm really bad about uh, keeping my bikes clean. But the fact of the matter is you're going to be putting in a lot of miles. And the dirtier your bike is, the more brake pads you're going to go through, the more chains you're going to go through and consumables. You know, your bar tape's going to wear out faster. And that Stuart, st- actually costs you money. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it starts to add up, man. Uh, if you spend a lot of time on bikes, that stuff adds up. So take care of your training bike. We, we, we talk about the term training bike and we think, oh, that's my beater. It's not your beater. This is not a beater bike. This is your race bike that you're training on. Treat it as such. So be sure that you're, you're paying attention to those things. I mentioned bar tape. It's fine if your bar tape is getting pretty tatty and loose on your training rides. Definitely change your bar tape before a race. You don't want to be distracted while you're in a sprint. Uh, you don't want your bar tape rotating while you're on a long climb. I think that's one that people overlook. It could be the day before the race and you look at your old nasty bar tape and you're like, oh, it's fine. And then you get to the race and it just starts unraveling or it just moves a little bit and you're getting a little blister on your hand from it. Respect yourself. Has yeah. this actually happened to you? <laughs> it has. It has indeed. Wow. Uh, yeah. A, a lot of bizarre things happen to me. Uh, Respect your bike. No, no bees in my Respect booty. Respect the but, race. Respect yourself. Yeah. Make sure your bike is clean. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm often distracted by bar tape, even when it's done properly. So <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm kind of adamant about this one. 
One little tip I'll, I'll throw in here. This is what I do when it comes to those things that wear down and, and you need to make sure they're, they're new enough to be race caliber, race worthy. Things like your set, your chain, your tires. It really varies from person to person, depending on how many miles you're putting in every month. But let's say a, a new chain has about two and a half months in it before it reaches the point that it, you can't really race on it anymore. It's just too stretched. What I tend to do is during the race season, I'll actually just use the chain for a month and a half. I won't take it all the way to where it's dead and then get a new chain. So during the race season, I'm actually on fairly new gear all the time. But when I take the chain off, I put it away. And when I get to the winter where all I'm doing is training, I don't care about being fast. I don't care about my gear working perfectly. I pull that chain out. Then I can get another couple months out of it and actually extend the length of it. And, so, and I should clarify here that Trevor rides his bike a lot. So that month and a half for a normal person is probably slightly longer. Right. <laughs> but also on that note, be careful when you start using used chains on new cassettes and things like that, uh, it can cause some shifting issues. So just be aware that if you're throwing that old chain back on your training bike and you're suddenly getting shifting issues and you're like, what the heck, you know, that's probably, probably the culprit. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's a training bike. I think pretty well covered. Your training bike should be functional, clean, probably heavy aluminum wheels. Just, just, you just don't want to have to worry about it. Let's move on. Let's uh, let's talk about what a race bike looks like. And again, I think this is most people who have been doing this for a while are going to know this stuff. But let's let's still just lay it all out there. What is a race bike going to look like? Well, I'm going to tell you what your most important piece of gear is for training or racing, and that's the the garage beer fridge, or if you're in Boulder, <laughs> your kale smoothie fridge. Kale smoothie fridge. Um, yes. The reason being is because you're going to spend some time in the garage getting your race day bike ready, even if it's generally ready to go. A couple, I would say a good week before the race. Here's another one you really want to check is check your bike over for cracks. We're all riding carbon. Give it a good once over and make sure there's no cracks, no chips, things that you didn't see before. You would hate for that to happen during a race. You would hate to have a failure during the race or discover a crack and be thinking about it during the race. So give your bike a once over and make sure all your gear is good to go. So that's a week out. That's maybe even more, two yeah. weeks out. And and it should be, honestly, it should be a constant process you should be doing that pretty regularly every time you wash your bike <laughs> every time you wash your bike that's step two clean two your or three bike. times a year clean two two a year. your yeah. bike i'm saying this for me clean your bike Dan. clean your bike clean your bike. yeah clean your bike if you're not getting a new drivetrain before a race which you know if it's a big race i would probably recommend it but if money's a constraint and you're not getting a, a new drivetrain or if your drivetrain's still pretty new clean it get a good chain cleaner uh, get a good brush clean out your gears, uh, inspect them, make sure you're, you know, you're not getting any shark teeth on the, on the chain rings, be as detailed as you can be, especially with your drivetrain. And that goes, you know, frame as well. You're going to clean your frame and Kristen, you use like a, a frame polish on your frame before mm -hmm. races. Yeah. yeah. Like bike lust. Yeah. I think, I don't know if it's actually been studied, but I feel like there's a little bit more aerodynamics when it's <laughs> a smoother, faster surface. <laughs> Might so be psychosomatic, but all it, you of know. those little grains of dirt on there are just yeah. slowing you down. Right. So it's like, it's like, it's like a golf ball. <laughs> yeah. It's creating turbulence. The dirt on my bike is just creating turbulence. <laughs> turbulence is good. Um, so anyway, if you're not getting this, clean your bike, clean your bike, clean your bike. Well, and the, you know, another point about cleaning your bike and especially your drivetrain is that not only is it to make it function more smoothly, but you're actually going to, you're going to cause more resistance in the drivetrain when there's a bunch of gunk in there. So when you're, you know, your little derailleur pulleys have all of that black grime on there, you're using more energy, you're putting out more watts to go to push your bike that much more. So 
cleaning your bike actually makes you faster. And ceramic speed, if you're using stuff like that or ceramic bearings, they actually have little bottles of their specially formulated lube that you're supposed to use on mm. your bearings. That'd be a good time to do it. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to go all the way down the rabbit hole there. Yeah. Uh, so we, you know, we've done a whole lot of drivetrain testing here at VeloNews. Uh, we did the original lube test a couple of years ago that has since sort of changed, actually changed the way that that pro teams are preparing for things like time trials. They're all using waxed chains now. That that came from a test that we did a couple of years ago that proved that if you pay attention to this stuff, if you pay attention to things like lubes, like a, a, a hard wax tends to work really, really well, which again, it, it, you can find this stuff on, on bellanews.com pretty easily. If you pay attention to that kind of stuff, if you clean your, your pulleys, if you make sure that all your bearings are in, in good condition, you're talking about actual watts here. I mean, it's, it, it could be a real difference. It could be the same difference as going from a regular helmet to an aero helmet. If you are, particularly if you're going from a really nasty drivetrain to a very, very smooth and silky drivetrain. So it's definitely worth paying attention to in the lead up to a race. Another thing I'll quickly add is invest the 5 to $10 in a chain stretch checker and check the stretch in your chain frequently. Because once a chain is stretched, not only is that going to hurt your performance, but then it starts grooving out your cassette, it starts grooving out your chain rings. And a new chain it can be 40 to $60. Cassettes and chain rings are a lot more expensive, mm -hmm. so you don't want to be destroying those. Here's another one that I'm uh, often guilty of, of not doing. Damn, you're just the worst. Uh, I, I'm really a terrible, <laughs> terrible Wait a minute. Uh, Wait a minute. <laughs> no, Trevor's the worst. I oh, take that back. Sorry, I'm second I rescind worst. my worst yeah. designation. I take it off of Dan's shoulders and put it back on Trevor where it rightfully belongs. Is it weird that I feel sad about that? <laughs> anyway, one that I'm bad about, if you're using electronic shifting, uh, DI2 or ETAP or Campy, please charge your batteries. And you should be doing that at least a week out. And here's why. You can have problems with batteries, and you don't want to find out that problem the day before the race because then you're rushing to a shop that probably doesn't have a replacement in stock. Uh, and if you charge it a week before, you should have plenty of battery life by the time you get to your race day, unless you're riding huge miles that week. But I would say charge your batteries five to seven days out. Make sure there's no problems. You have a fresh charge. Raise your hand if you've been in the middle of a race and your DI2 battery goes dead. <laughs> yep. just, I'm extremely two, reti retired. I don't actually yeah, do that anymore. Two, but yeah, I, have been out on, I have been out on lunch rides when that happened to yeah. me before. <laughs> no, actually, uh, here's, here's a pro tip. Have an extra battery. That is actually, if you if you look in the back of a pro mechanics truck, they have, well, they have dozens of them, if not more. You should have an extra, if you're DI2, an extra DI2 battery charged up. If you're on ETAP, an extra ETAP battery charged up. If you're on Campagnolo, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Campy battery. Yeah, Campy battery. <laughs> yeah, if, if, you're on, if you're on DI2, have an extra DI2 battery. If you're on SRAM ETAP, have an extra ETAP battery. Just leave it in your bag. Charge it up. These are, these are lithium-ion batteries. If you charge them and just leave them somewhere, they're not going to run down by themselves. It would take a very, very long, long time for them to do so. So just stick it in a corner, corner of your race bag, have it with you. At least then if something weird happens the morning of the race or the night before the race, you know you have a backup. Those batteries are not that expensive. You're already spending all this money on a race license and a, and a race and gas to get there and all these other things and the bike that you're on, buy an extra battery. Mm -hmm. It's not that hard. And on a similar note, if you're a Luddite, and you're still on cables, <laughs> cables, cables, check your cables, uh, <laughs> see, look for phrase and actually check your, the way the cable moves through the cable housing. And if it's sluggish, change them out. 
it's mm-hmm. a cheap, cheap fix that's going to make a lot of difference. Hey, I'm still in Shimano 600, okay? Shimano. <laughs> Shimano. You also say Shimano like a Canadian. Shimano. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. But who here remembers Shimano 600? Uh, I, I remember Shimano 600. Uh, okay. Shimano. I'm gonna. I'm gonna call it Shimano forever. Shimano. <laughs> really bad. Shimano. You just Canadianified me, yeah. Trevor. Uh, <laughs> Shimano. Uh, no, actually, I have a Shimano 600 front hub on my commuter, my CAD three Canada CAD three commuter bike that spins better than most of the hubs that come in brand yep. new to mm-hmm. Bellinus. And that thing is, God, 15, 20 years old now, right? 20 years old, at least 20 years old. So yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Oh, I like that stuff. <laughs> so we talked a lot about training wheels. Shall we talk about race day wheels? What's the difference? We, we should to, do that. We we should. Yeah. yeah. Should we now? Do it, Dan. Let's and, do it. And now. so here's yeah. the big question: clincher or tubular? Yes. Actually, here's the thing about racing. <laughs> clinchers are fine. There's nothing wrong with clinchers. Clinchers are faster. Racers at elite levels use tubulars for a few reasons, the biggest of which is if you get a flat when you're going down a descent or something like that, it's less likely – well, you're, you're going to stay in better control until you can either get to a place where you can change your wheel or until you get down whatever sketchy descent you're on. And you can actually ride a tubular. You, I mean, you can ride a tubular flat for – As long as you want. A while. Yeah. I mean – you're not so, going to want to, but you can. <laughs> you're not, yeah. So, 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 Mark Cavendish actually crossed the line in third place mm-hmm. at the Tour of Dubai this year with a flat tire, which I know people don't believe, but I was standing there. I saw it. I saw the flat tire like right after the finish line. So, either it blew on the finish line or right after the finish line, or he's telling the truth, which is that it was pretty flat before he, before he even came across the line and he finished third in a sprint. So, mm-hmm. you can ride a tubular. And that's really why the pros do it is because they'll just keep riding. Basically, until they get to it, until a team car catches them, it keeps them closer to the bunch, saves a little bit of time. However, for amateurs, that's not really a concern. We don't have a caravan behind our races. That well, makes a big difference. And also, actually, tubular wheels tend to be slightly less expensive than clinchers. Tubular tires tend to be slightly more expensive. But really, that's it's sort of a wash in that sense because the big investment with with tubulars is your time or your money in terms of getting them set up. You know, it's worth very little for everyone in this room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For Twelve, us. thirteen dollars an hour. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, <laughs> getting your your tubulars glued up and glued up properly, glued up straight, is either an investment of your time or it's it's another thing that you're going to have to do before a race. Get them to the bike shop, have them t- uh, glue up your tubulars, make sure they're ready to go. It, depending on what level you're at and and how serious you are about racing, are clinchers fine? Yeah, clinchers are fine. Clinchers are faster. Dig into that for me a little bit because I I think that most people would not necessarily know that or have not heard that before. That clinchers are faster? Yes. So what was it at Worlds this year? Tony Martin won on clinchers? Correct. Uh, TT? Starting a couple years ago. At the yeah, he's actually. done it several times. Yeah. Uh, and that's because in tire testing, it's it's almost always the fact that, that clinchers are faster. So clinchers in are- In terms of rolling resistance, right? Yes. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So clinchers are faster. What does that mean? Well- First of all, let's let's qualify this. You have to have a certain kind of clincher. Uh, the fastest clinchers out there are, have cotton sidewalls, and that's important because that makes a very supple tire, a soft tire that when you get it to the correct pressure, you get a better contact patch. It's going to absorb road anomalies better, which means you're going to go over them faster. Tubulars, there's more material. They're thicker. They don't 
it's called hysteresis, I believe, is the, if I'm saying that correctly. Mm-hmm. Basically, they don't deform as readily as clinchers do. Yeah, and the sidewalls of a tubular are kind of a different shape because the tubular is self-contained, right, versus a clincher, which has sidewalls determined by the shape of the rim. That's part. That's a big part of it. It's essentially you're just talking about folding over sidewalls, and so the, the shape of those sidewalls makes a big difference. Right. And in keeping with you know the idea of not all clinchers are created equally, you know you want a cotton sidewall. You also want a latex inner tube, which is again thinner. Uh, it'll deform a little bit better than a, a, a butyl tube. Decrease rolling resistance. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that said, like like we were saying before, clinchers really have not taken off in pro racing. A big reason for that is, is as we said before, you can't ride them flat, and those guys do ride them flat pretty frequently. For an amateur, I mean, honestly, so you get a flat in the middle of a Cat 3 road race, right? There's probably maybe a wheel truck, like a neutral wheel truck, or you or a wheels-in, wheels-out wheel truck that's like way behind the field somewhere, and then you hop off your bike, you have to dig through, find your wheel. This takes a while. You probably have to replace it yourself, or there's an amateur mechanic there that is maybe not amazing at what he's doing or she's doing. And then you have to chase with the without the benefit of a very, very long line of cars to draft through. So really, if you're an amateur and you get a flat, your day is kind you're of pretty much done. Yeah, I'm actually really done. glad you brought that up because that's a really important thing to be aware of. Be careful about hearing what the top pros do and trying to imitate that because they have that car behind them. And I can tell you personally, I actually have two different race setups. The first thing I ask when I'm going to a race is, do we have a team car behind us or not? If we have a team car, I am going to set up my bike to be as fast as possible, but it's going to be a little more fragile because if I get a flat, if I have an issue, I'm probably going to get back into the race. If I'm in a race where we don't have a team car, where there's just the the neutral vehicle, I'm much more apt to set up my bike a little heavier, not quite as fast, but more bomb-proof. Because I know if I have a mechanical, that's it for the day. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think for most amateurs, if you get a flat in something like a road race, you know, crit's a different story because you can you can take a lat. But if you get a flat in a road race, your, your day is honestly probably over. Because even if you get back to the field, you've probably just t- chased at full gas for 15 minutes. Uh, and and you're probably not, not going to be doing so well uh, by the end of the race. So, so that's something to consider because you don't necessarily need to worry about the same things that a pro worries about, which is can I ride a flat tubular? If a clincher is faster and you already have clincher wheels, why why bother with, with a tubular setup for a lot of amateurs? Because there's, there's no real... The benefit is not really there. Might I share a quick horror story? The, sure. Just the the dangers of tubular wheels. So I did a a Centurion last fall, which is one of those. It's it's a race, but it's a mass start. So we had three thousand people starting, and half the Grand people Fonda. are racing it. It's yeah. kind of like a Grand Fonda. It's a little bit different. And I had my tubulars because I wanted to try them out because I was heading down to Reading in a week. So I was right at the front, first or second wheel. I got a flat. So I had to pull over to the side and this is an event where they had one vehicle with spare wheels at the back of 3000 people. (laughs) And as all the people racing passed by, you started getting the recreational riders and every single one of them started asking, how are you doing? Do you need a hand? Can I help you out? And after a thousand people ask you that question, you start going a little batty. (laughs) (laughs) Because you can't fix your own. That is the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah if you just if you if you've been on clinchers, you probably would have been able to fix it before the uh, before the wheel truck actually even got there. I would I could imagine have done something. Yeah, 
yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely something to consider. Again, there's there are fewer reasons to ride tubulars as an amateur, but there are still good reasons to ride them. I mean, it's still... Uh, there's a reason why people have been racing on tubulars for for a century. And there's products know. out there to help like seal up if you flat a tubular. So like pit stop mm-hmm. when I'm racing, if I'm racing tubulars, I'll usually just put that in a pocket unless it's, it's a really crit light. or something because yeah. you can usually fix it before the wheel car gets there. Yep. But the broader point here is that for a race bike, you wanna you want to be riding different tires than your training bike. Your training bike is gonna have big heavy tires. Maybe if you're Trevor, you got Mr. Tuffy's in there. If you're me, you have just a whole another set of tires in there. For race day, you definitely do not want to do that. Rolling resistance is very, very important. Like I said, you can gain quite a lot out of out of switching to a, a nice cotton sidewall race tire, putting a latex tube in there. Those are the things to keep an eye out for is you know a tire that tests well in terms of rolling resistance. And there are a whole bunch of tests out there, including ones that we've done. If you Google search velonews.com and tire testing, you definitely find them. And then stick a latex tube in. Speaking about the difference between the pros and you, let's talk brakes. Brakes. Yeah. Disc brakes. Disc brakes. <laughs> and the world just uh, caught fire. Uh, no. Thanks, Kristen. Oh, no. uh, yeah. We're obviously, if you read Velo News, you know we're advocates of disc brakes. We think they work better. They work more consistently. We're fans. For amateurs. We For should. amateurs, yeah. yeah. Sorry. To qualify. We're not telling the pros what they should or shouldn't do. That's their deal. But if you happen to be using disc brakes, I'm going to give you the same advice I'm going to give people who are using rim brakes, which is check your pads. You know, we tend to think because disc brake pads last longer and they're more durable that you don't need to check them. Not true. You're going to be putting on a lot of miles. I'm sure you're doing a lot of climbing, which means you're probably doing a lot of descending and you're probably going to be riding in a lot of different conditions and brake, disc brake pads can get contaminated just like any other. So check them. Uh, rim brakes are a lot easier to tell when they're, when they're worn. Uh, you look at them and you say, oh, they're, they're low. I'm going to change them. And that's something you should be doing before race anyway, a few days before and, and give yourself a few days to ride them and break them in. New brake pads can, they won't offer this, the, uh, the same amount of stopping power as they will when they're worn in. And that goes for rim and disc. Uh, and a, a really big point to, to say here is that if you are switching from your aluminum rims to your carbon rims, change your brake yes. pads. Even yes. if you're using the same type of pad, which you probably shouldn't be between the two. You should never be. But yeah. the brake pads can kind of take up some of that aluminum in the pads themselves. Yeah. And so then when you switch, switch your wheels over to carbon, that aluminum can kind of dig into that carbon and yeah. really damage your wheels. So yeah. make sure you're always switching between those, between mm-hmm. the different wheels. Yeah, if you're not careful, you can kill a pair of carbon wheels in one or two stops. Real quick, yeah. yeah. And, Which uh, also means that if you are in a race on carbon wheels and you flat and you get neutral wheels that are aluminum, those brake I hate to say it, but throw those brake pads yeah, out. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and most bike wheels, carbon wheels, are coming with their own brake pads these days. Try to replace them with the same pads if you can. They're, the carbon wheels are, are meant to be used with brake pads that are specially formulated, a different compound to be used with carbon. Deal with the heat. Yeah. I mean, and I've done, you know, I've used NV pads on Mavic wheels and things like that. And it's generally fine, though, you know, Envy does, for example, make a special compound for for their wheels. So you can void your warranty, though. You can, yeah. yeah. So be sure you know what pads you're supposed to be using for each wheel. And the same thing with disc brakes. Inspect them. Make sure that they're not worn and make sure they're not contaminated. Uh, make sure you get a good braking feel from them and do this several days before the race. Let's take a quick break. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of the next generation D0 power meter platform. D0 is packed with 10 years of technical innovations. It also offers a choice of Bluetooth, low energy, or Ant Plus data transmission, and broader compatibility. 
get the power meter chassis or the D zero power meter spider for power ready OEM bikes. Find out more at quirk.com forward slash D zero. Moving on. Let's, uh, let's talk gear and clothing. I think we got a pretty good idea what a training bike and what a race bike should, should look like here. There's a lot more that goes into heading off to a bike race. Uh, what's in your bag? What's a good bag, shoes, helmet, glasses, stuff like that. Kristen, I know that you've done some homework on this front. You look like you've done your homework. <laughs> she just, she just made a face. It's like, uh, I definitely didn't do my homework yeah. actually. <laughs> Well, race gear. But she clothing. just knows stuff. She yeah. didn't have to do her homework. No, I mean, I think the biggest overall thing with your race gear and your clothing is just having it organized and having a system. For cross racing, I have this checklist that I go through every single week. And before I go to the races and it has, you know, like how many base layers I'm going to bring. You know, I have a cold weather and a warm weather race list. And so I just make sure and that I'm getting every single piece that I need so that I don't miss bringing my race kit or, you know, like a pair of shoes or something. So just having things organized and then having the same system for all of the different races, whether you're going to drive to the race, whether you're just going to roll over because it's close to home, that kind of thing. It's, it's just nice to know your system. So what's in your race bag? Talk us through your race bag all the way through. So I guess you, you have to start with the basics, right? Or like the essentials. So you have to have all of your gear in terms of your bike, that's an obvious one. Don't forget your bike. Don't forget your bike. <laughs> Pro tip. <laughs> you heard, heard it here first. <laughs> Don't forget your bike. No, but your your shoes, your helmet, sunglasses, your race kit, and this anything that you absolutely need, you know, an inhaler if you have asthma, any kind of medicine, that kind of thing. So starting with, with those basics and then expanding from that for cold weather, do you have really thick gloves? Do you have your thinner gloves? For cold weather stuff, I like to bring extra clothing so that after I'm done warming up and I've been sweating a whole bunch, I swap over into the dry clothes so that when I'm standing on the start line, I'm not freezing. For hot races, it's kind of thinking about how to protect yourself from the sun. So bringing an umbrella to, to warm up under if you're going to warm up on a trainer or and then just all of your water, your food, that kind of stuff. So Make a list. I mean, if you're the type of person that forgets their shoes when they go to a bike race, you should probably have yep. a checklist. Dan is over here sticking his hands straight up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> that's me. That's me. <laughs> and forgets things sometimes. Yes. No, I think that's actually, it, it is an important point. If Whether you're forgetful or not, it's good to have a list. Especially for big races when you might be really nervous mm-hmm. and you might be not thinking exactly clear. So it's nice to just have something that you go through every single time and, and have a, you pack the same way. Here's I don't my, think we can emphasize this enough. Have a race bag. And by the way, keep about 200 pins in that race bag yes, at all seriously. times. <laughs> oh my but the other thing to do is have that list, type it up, print it out. That list should just always be in the bag. So Why don't we make a list for people? Tell you what, underneath the this episode of the podcast, if you go to velonews.com and find this podcast, we will have a list of things that you should have in your race bag. We'll yeah. do that We'll do that for you. And I'm going to give you a, a real simple one that I give all my athletes, and I'll spell it out so I'm not cursing on our podcast. <laughs> But it's S-H-J-T list. Shoes, helmet, jersey, tights. Shit. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, You have those four things and your bike, so we could call it the B (laughs) list. We have have advanced beeping technology in this podcast. (laughs) You will be able to at least start the race with those things. 
So as the type of person who takes his race day bag and throws it at his closet and whatever falls in is what he takes, I will say there is one thing that I will not do without. And actually it's two things. Number one is a big towel because I don't know how many races I've been to where I've had to get changed at my, my truck. And you're standing on. I thought you liked those skirts that you put on. Uh, That's number (laughs) two. You stole my thunder. You stole my thunder. Uh, Dan's a huge skirt fan. The changing skirt is is polarizing in the office. I have one. I love it. It's it's basically a piece of fabric. It's a towel essentially, but it's got uh, the one I have is from Pactimo, and it's got Velcro and it Velcro's around your waist. So I'm not like you know pulling off my chamois, and all of a sudden the towel falls off, and the world is lucky enough to see my (laughs) shining booty. It's it's indispensable because I you know races at our level at my level the, the worst level possible is where I'm at. It's a low level. Uh, yeah, it's very yeah. low. Yep. Uh, you're you're getting changed in parking lots. Don't feel you're getting too bad changed about it. in your. I don't feel bad about it. I feel proud because <laughs> <laughs> I still get to drink beer and eat food. I do prefer the skirt to uh, maybe Fred's method of just getting naked in the parking lot. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody wants nobody Fred naked wants in a parking lot ever. No. That's not a good look for anybody. You race long enough, all sense of humility goes out the window. <laughs> for you, but not for the passing traffic. You know, yeah. it's it's not for you. It's for the it's for the passersby. I have I have one more pro tip, and this is what I used to do for mountain bike racing way back in the day, uh, and, and then just kept doing it throughout throughout my road racing career. Is really not the right word, but you know time I spent road racing is that I would make on the floor. So if you're in a hotel or whatever, or leaving your, even before you leave your house while you're packing, you make on the floor, a little person out of all the you stuff make you have to wear. Floor. Yeah. yeah. So you're like, so you're like, you know, you're like helmet. And then you, I don't know if it's cold, like a little like neck thing. And then you put the Jersey down and the base layer down and the shorts down, uh-huh. the that leg warmers down socks down, <laughs> shoes down. You make a little person on the floor and you're like, I got everything. Yeah. I got the whole person. And then if you get there and you're like, oh, I forgot my shoes, then you wouldn't, it's never going to happen because your, your little person would have, would have had no shoes. You need shoes a YouTube you channel noticed. of you just making We're going to make this into a video. Floor. <laughs> Maybe in addition to the checklist underneath this podcast, we will have a video of me making my, making your floor my people. race day floor person. <laughs> I think, Hey, and Kaylee this is a great idea. I, I, I am guilty of doing that as well. <laughs> Kaylee then sits on the bed and talks with yeah. her. <laughs> well, so he's we'll put that me. list up there, but do we want to go around quickly and just have all of us say things that need to be in the list that might not be obvious? Oh, yeah, we can do that. And then we'll also be, like I said, we, were, we are actually going to do this. So, you know, wherever you're listening to this podcast, which is probably on your phone, you're going to have to go find the actual page that we put up on velonews.com for this podcast. If you search velonews podcast, what do you need in your garage? You will find it. Let's go around circle. What do you need to include? Let's start with you, Trevor. You came up with it. So I will tell you the one thing that I found really helped is you have that dedicated race bag and that dedicated race bag should never be empty. There are some things you should put in it that you never take out until you accidentally forget it from your list. And then it's just in the race bag, if that makes sense. So for example, in my race bag, I always have pins because you're going to go to races and the race organizers are going to run out of pins for your, for your numbers. So always have pins in there. Always have a pair of socks in there because that's one of the things that people will forget. If you have a lot of kits, keep a, just keep a set of, of, uh, tights and a Jersey in the bag at all times. And I'm getting weird looks. 
Hey, that's three things, man. You're stealing our thunder. <laughs> well, I'm just, just one. No, we can all do. We can all do multiple. Sorry, I didn't think it was just one uh, thing. Keep going, Trevor. Keep going. We'll, yep. we'll think of other things that are. I'm running out of things. Yeah. I'm scared over here. <laughs> well, so I'll leave it there. Those are some things. There are a lot of other things, but my key point is have some stuff that you always keep in the bag. So if you're you suddenly find yourself rushing before a race to pack up really quickly and you forget your socks, well, you have a set of socks that are always in the bag. So just last thing I'll add to that is always have a, a tool in the bag. Oh, no. Dan, you're killing me over here, Trevor. Tools. I'm last in this line. What kind of tool would you, would Oops, you bring, sorry. Dan? You can be second in this line. Oh, I can be second? Kristen will be okay. last. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. I'll think of something. Uh, the two things that I will say, two, is uh, nutrition. I always leave some some gels and some... Like a burrito or... Yeah, well, yeah. that is... Okay. That's post-ride. Uh, I don't want to have a burrito belly. Burrito and a beer. Racing. Those are Dan's two things. Bring a burrito, burrito and, and a beer. Leave them in your bag at all times. Just because I carry that with me everywhere I go. <laughs> uh, no, some nutrition, some gels or, or blocks or something. Make sure they're not expired, but some nutrition just in case as I tend to forget that stuff. And also building on what Trevor said uh, about a tool, I actually keep a, uh, a bug out bag of tools, multiple tools, a torque wrench, especially because carbon everything. Allen keys, uh, even a CO2 inflator. I have that bag always ready to go, and I keep it either in my bag or in my car. Good stuff, Dan. I'm thinking of mine. Um, well, I have two things too, I guess, yeah. that are different than what we've talked about, especially for stage racing or if you're going to do, if you're racing on a Saturday and you have another crit the next day or something like that, bringing stuff for recovery. So whether that's, you know, you're wearing compression socks or your recovery drink or, or just having food ready after the race so that you're not finishing and then having to wait around for a while and then going and trying to find food and, and water. But then also I'm pretty particular with sunglasses and the tint of the lenses for where you're racing and what the weather's like, if it's going to be a really shady race, that kind of thing. So I bring multiple pairs of glasses just so that I can see the course and then decide what's going to be the best for that day. All right. I have two more things that need to be in every race bag and you just leave them in there. The first is sunscreen, just a little bottle of sunscreen. And that's because I am white as snow. Transparent is the word. Somewhat transparent yeah. as a, uh, I'm exceptionally Northern European, I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> You're very Vermont. Quite Vermont. Yeah. yeah. Not helped by growing up in, in Burlington, Vermont. Yeah. And the second is a, a little tin of like baby wipes. And there's, there's a million different versions of this. You can get sports specific versions. I honestly don't know why you would do that when you can just go to the grocery store and buy baby wipes for like $2, have some baby wipes. Those sort of like wet wipe things just as a way to clean off before you get home, take the chamois off, clean the undercarriage, prevent the growth of mushrooms before oh, you get God. to the shower. <laughs> <laughs> that went deep, man. That went deep. Clean yourself off. Make yourself slightly less stinky. At least you'll be a little bit more comfortable on the drive home from your race. Oh, I thought of another one, a good playlist. So if you're going to warm up on a trainer and you have music, you need to have a good playlist because trying to listen to like some slow music is not going to work. What's the, uh, what's the first song on Kristen Ligon's warm up playlist? Gangnam style. (laughs) (laughs) Um, fat boy slim right here, right now. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I always remember there was a Michael Jordan, like IMAX movie. A long time ago that opened with that song. So whenever I hear that song, I just picture Michael Jordan like running into a basketball. It makes me really excited. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that song. Let's play it. Right here, right now. 
Well, that was so life-changing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's really the name of the song, but... Don't a day before or two days before the race try to figure out the, what the weather is going to be and whether you should have arm warmers or not. You should have big enough a, a race bag that just grab your knee warmers, your leg warmers, your arm warmers, your vest, your jacket, toss it all in, and then when you get to the race, decide what you need. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely an important point. There's no reason not to bring stuff, but particularly if you're driving to a race, just like have a have a plenty of tools, have spare cleats, have spare brake pads, have spare tubes, have spare tires. I mean, all this stuff, anything that could go wrong as you're like warming up, cruising around the parking lot, you want to be able to fix really quickly. So anything you could fit in a car, obviously if you're flying to a race, slightly different story, but anything you can fit in a car, you might as well bring. There's no real reason not to. Oh, oh I just had an idea. Go ahead. It's uh, once in a once in a week or I'm so. Italian. I talk yeah. with my hands. I can't help it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you. Were you saying something important? I'm never saying something <laughs> okay. important. I, didn't, I, just, I, I was just asking out of courtesy. I didn't really expect you to keep going. <laughs> the one thing I just it just popped in my head that you might want to consider, uh, not in your bag, but throw in your trunk of your car as a, a, a trainer. Uh, sometimes it's not always feasible to pre-ride the course uh, if there's another race going on, if you get there late, whatever, you're still going to want to spin, warm up. So bring a small trainer uh, that you can pop your bike on real quick and, and spin. We really love the feedback that's Omnium it, trainer because yeah, it's really lightweight, mind. easy to set up, yeah. and you can just leave it in your car. Yeah. Good warm-up trainer. Yeah. Feedback Omnium. Mm-hmm. Pro tip. I can tell you, every time I drive to races with teammates, they always show up with this tiny little backpack. They look at how much stuff I toss in the car, and they make fun of me for having so much stuff. People make fun of you? Never. <laughs> I don't see why. But then the two hours before the race, they're all coming up to me. Oh, Trevor, I forgot this. Can I borrow it? Trevor, you mind if I use that? And it's one thing if you're on a plane, but if you're driving to a race, you got the room. Put it in. Okay. We've now covered, uh, do you need two bikes? The answer is no. Training bike versus race bike. That can be the same bike. We've covered the ways that you can change that bike to turn it from a training bike into a race bike. We've covered gear and clothing. We've covered the race bag. The last thing we want to talk about today is race-specific setup. And that, well, basically we want, we want to talk about the ways you can set up your bike for various different types of races. So what does your bike look like in a road race? What does your bike look like in a crit? What does your bike look like in a time trial? These are going to be subtle changes because it's all racing. Uh, maybe not between a time trial and the rest, but they will be generally subtle changes, but important changes nonetheless. So first and foremost, let's talk about something that's that's very, very important in terms of race setup. We already talked about this a little bit in the training bike to race bike swap. Tires. Tires are are vital in the way that the tires that you select and the way that you set them up is vital. So road race, crit, time trial. How does that setup change between those three? events, those three common events for our, our listeners. So basically the rule of thumb here is the more technical a race is, the lower the tire pressure you want to run. So crits, well, so road race, if it's a flat, pretty straight road race, you can be a little more gutsy with your tire pressure and run as high as 110, even up to 120, though I don't ever really see a reason to go up to 120. Um, Never. If you're in a crit or you've got a real technical descent, you should be running closer to, I would say, 90 to 105. And if it is raining, then you start looking at tire pressures below 90. Would you guys agree? I haven't run tire pressure over 100 in 
a long, long in a long time. For pressures, what um, size tires are we talking about? Oh, that good point. Weird. So, so wow. So pretty much the entire Pro Peloton is on 25s at this point. They very, very rarely run anything smaller than that, and that is because it, it science has proven hashtag science has proven that it's sort of the optimal balance between aerodynamics and rolling resistance. And so the only time that you see anything smaller is occasionally on the front wheel of a time trial bike. So teams will sometimes run like a 23 or 24 on the front wheel of a time trial bike and then a fatter tire on the back where aerodynamics doesn't matter so much. I forget who it was, but there has been a recent study that has shown that the aerodynamics of the wider tire actually doesn't make a difference. It all depends on the rim. It depends on the rim. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think the big big thing was – it, it it very much depends on what rim you pair it with, but generally rims these days seem to be designed for a 25 aerodynamically. You will see 26s and 28s at things like the Cobble Classics. So oh, for if, sure. If you're going to be in a, on a – Remember on 30s at Roubaix, even 32. Yeah, if you're going yeah. to be in a situation where even if you have like a patch of gravel or if you're going to be hit on some really gnarly roads, you might want to go bump up to tire size. I think in general we can talk about – when we talk about race tires these days, 25. it means a 25. Yeah. So 24 to 26, we'll say. And in that range, then yeah, there's very little reason to run over 100 PSI, honestly. You can definitely run higher if you're on a, a, a thinner tire, if you're on a 23 or for some reason on a 21. Do they even sell 21s anymore? They should. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they should not sell 21s they should anymore. stop. <laughs> so I will qualify. The numbers I was giving you were based on a 23. Right. So it's probably a, a decent rule of thumb, thumb to say for 25s, about, about 100. 10 PSI lower yeah. from what I just recommended. 90 to 100. 90 to 100 yeah. is pretty fair. Depending on your weight. And again, a lot of it depends on the weight. Mm-hmm. If uh, you, have to, you, have to, you have to match it up to terrain so if you're gonna like if yeah if you're gonna have a dirt section then you need to make sure you're not gonna pinch flat but you also want it low enough that you can maintain grip and and a little bit of comfort but in general yeah 25 mil tire i mean if i was racing personally because i'm a pretty light guy i weigh you know a little under one 150 about 66 66 and a half kilos i you know i'm running 85 on the in the front tire of a race setup with a 25 so what about a technical rainy race? What's the lowest pressure you want to run on a 25? 70. Yeah. I wouldn't go 75. quite that low. I would say 75 to yeah. 80. Yeah. Yeah, again, dependent on your weight. Yeah. But I've got, I mean, I've got 10, 15 pounds on Kaylee. So, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm, I'd be hesitant to go down 70 to 75. That's way too, too little for me. So I'd be in the, I would probably wouldn't go below 80. That would be my stopping point. Yeah, with a 25. With Again, 25. bigger, you know. So last, I rode the Paris-Roubaix Sportif a couple years ago on 28s, and we were running 60. 55 front, 60 rear. But that's Paris-Roubaix, which is totally insane. So, On a flip side, because I've seen this way too many times, if you are running tubulars, it says on the side of your tubular that it can handle up to 160 PSI. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't. You'll kill everyone around you. <laughs> it's a really good way to crash in the first corner of a, of a criterion is to put 160 PSI in your tires. No, that's a maximum. That That is what you can blow them up to before they explode. That's right. not what. That's not a recommended pressure. <laughs> Again, all this stuff is, is it's hard to pin down in terms of here's the number that you should use because it all is very much dependent on how much you weigh and where you're riding. But I think we can provide a little bit of guidance here. Like we said, right. 25 mil tire, 90 to hundred PSI and sort of a normal road race, drop it down a little bit. If you're going to be on dirt, if you're going to run a bigger tire, drop it down. If you're going to run a narrower tire, don't get a 25 mil tire. <laughs> so let's move on from tires to wheels. And I think we need to make an assumption here. 
which is probably not a, a valid assumption, but let's just assume that you have a plethora of wheel choices. Let's say that you have shallow wheels and mid-depth wheels and deep wheels and a disc wheel and aluminum wheels and carbon wheels and all sorts of wheels. Let's say you have let's let, let's say basically say that you have you have the Bella News Tech Room at your disposal, uh, like we do. What do you pick for? Let's just start with a a traditional road race, hilly road race. What are you picking for a hilly road race? You want and I I know my answer here, which may be different from some of the other answers around the table, actually. Am I going to try to win this race? <laughs> you are trying to win this race. Okay. That is the goal of racing. Not just survive. Nope. Okay. <laughs> it should be the same either I'm going to have to think outside the box on this one. <laughs> one with a motor in yeah. it? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, well, something I'll throw deep. in here, and you might, you, you might disagree with this. But my understanding when you're talking about a, a deep dish wheel versus a, a, a shallower rim, deep dish wheels are more aerodynamic. Once you're up to speed, they have better inertia but they don't accelerate as well. Where a wheel with a, a much uh, narrower rim isn't as aerodynamic, but it can accelerate really rapidly. So that's something to, to consider. If you're in a crit where you're constantly slowing, up, slowing down, speeding up, you don't necessarily want a big deep dish rim, in my, in my opinion. If you want a deep dish pizza. Is what you want. At the end. Yeah. No, that's really that's actually really true. And we've actually been doing a bunch of testing on wheel inertia, moment of inertia, or rotational inertia. So in our buyer's guide, we have some wheel tests coming out and that talk about this a little bit. And you can kind of compare the deeper rims do have a higher inertia. So to preempt Tom Anhalt tweeting at us, uh, because he's going to. <laughs> I already know this. And uh, Hi Tom. Hi Tom. We know you're listening. Uh, fake news. <laughs> so there is a little bit of, there's a bit of debate on this and as, as to the importance of inertia. And guys like Tom will point at data that suggests that aerodynamics almost always is more important than inertia because of the speeds that we travel at in a bike race. I struggle with this one a little bit, to be perfectly honest. I do think that one of the things that keeps wheels shallow particularly for climbing is is tradition and feel because wheels with light rims feel different and different is not necessarily faster but we have associated it with faster so i think that basically light rims are sort of easier to flip back and forth when you're out of the saddle and so a bike can sort of feel more sprightly whether you're actually accelerating faster by any appreciable amount is is again somewhat up for debate so my choice for a road race is almost always going to be a deeper wheel rather than a shallower one, even if there's quite a bit of climbing. And you don't want to go crazy. Like I don't, you start running into issues with crosswinds. You definitely start running into issues with just weight, period. A big Zip 808 or something like that is just a heavy wheel. It's just not, you know, it, yes, it's more aerodynamic. It's also just heavy relative to something like a 303 or a 404 or an NV34 or 45 or any number of, of sort of other options out there in that sort of mid-depth range. Regardless, I would generally pick for a road race something in a 50 to 60 millimeter depth, which is probably a little bit heavier than what many would choose for, for a hilly road race, a little bit deeper than what many would choose. But again, I tend to think that aerodynamics trumps inertia most of the time. It, it has to get pretty damn steep before that changes. You know, if you had asked me this question three months ago, 
I would have said something a lower depth, like a Mavic Cerium Carbon, which is a great wheel. But I think since then, I've spent a ton of time riding Zip 404s and the 454s in all sorts of conditions because I have to. I have to test this stuff. So I end up riding this stuff a lot. And what I found is that if I stop looking at my wheels, they feel the same going up, going down. It, you know, it's, yeah, the, the big wheels definitely add some weight. Maybe they're not as quick off the line, but that's not the way I race anyway. So for me, I want something that's going to be aerodynamic. It's going to shed crosswinds as much as possible. And, you know, I can climb on them. I can descend on them. And for me, descending is more important because that's my weakness. I, I, I'm, I'm not a super aggressive descender. So I want something that's going to feel stable. That's going to feel, it's going to have a good contact. It's going to be wide enough that my tire gets a good contact patch. So, uh, you know, the 404 depth is, is about what I'm comfortable with right now, which isn't to say that I couldn't ride those Siriums and be totally fine. But I think just the way things are going with wheel technology and the way wheels are starting to shed uh, winds at different yaw angles, those taller profiles aren't as jumpy as they used to be. They're a lot more versatile than they used to be because, right. they, yeah, they're lighter and they're less affected by crosswinds right. for sure right. than even a couple of years ago. Right. I have to definitely agree with you guys on the 30 to 50 mil range. Um, the aerodynamics play such a large role in racing and especially, you know, on the swim women's side of racing, our pelotons seem or tend to be smaller. So you're, you're out in the wind a bit more. And so really focusing on the aerodynamics is, is huge for us. Well, so one other question to throw in there is, do you think the same rules apply for something like crit where you are constantly going around corners, constantly accelerating? For crit racing, I think going with wheels that maybe are less expensive mm -hmm. and a little bit more durable because you're likely to be in some crashes or getting knocked around a little bit. So if you're somebody who can't afford to replace carbon rims on a regular basis, um, a really solid set of lightweight uh, aluminum rims could be a great option for you. And there are some aluminum rims in this sort of 30 millimeter depth range that are actually quite aerodynamic these days. Zip is making some, Head makes some. Campy's got some good. Campagnolo actually yeah. has some excellent wheels these yeah, days. That's, yeah. that's one that we haven't mentioned yet. But mm -hmm. uh, the, the brake track on on the Boras is actually among the best brake tracks on the planet in terms of carbon wheels. But anyway, uh, for crits, yeah, I, I'm I'm very much with Kristen here in that you're going to crash. You're probably going to break some wheels unless you don't care about the cost of that wheel. Just go with something aluminum. I mean, it, it's not it's not going to lose you a crit. Most likely you spend a lot of time in a field. There's a lot of acceleration. It's not a time trial. I mean, if you're the kind of guy that needs to win a, t a crit alone, then maybe go with a deeper wheel set. But if you're a sprinter or just, just trying to, trying to so kind of an all arounder type rider, I think an aluminum wheel set, a modern aluminum wheel set can be really, really, really good for a fraction of the cost. Well, and like what Trevor was saying is having a, maybe a shallower set of wheels that you feel like you can get up to speed and get around corners a little bit easier, whereas deeper rims sometimes feel like they they take a little bit extra right. to kind of get on top of the speed with those. So, so some shallower wheels can kind of sometimes help with that. Mm -hmm. Which is a really good point. In a crit, it's all about your ability to corner. You need to be on a wheel that you feel comfortable really leaning over and taking a, a corner fast. And you can have the, the fastest carbon wheels in the world, but if you're not comfortable cornering with them, you're going to be out the back in a crit. What about time trials? Stop entering time trials, guys. 
Discs. No. <laughs> I only discs have, are everything. Yes. <laughs> I only have one thing to say about time trials. Yeah, rear disc wheel, that seems pretty obvious. Front wheels, there's a bunch of debate. You'll you probably notice that a lot of the pro teams are using tri-spoke and similar wheels these days. Um, a big reason for that is because those wheels are very, very efficient aerodynamically at very low yaw angles. So that means that sort of more headwind uh, versus more crosswind. Those wheels are less efficient with more crosswind. And one of the one of the factors that determines the yaw angle the effective yaw angle is how fast you're going. So part of the reason why those tri-spokes work so well for the pros is because they are flying. If you're not flying, those tri-spokes may not be as good for you. It means that a even a light crosswind will create a higher yaw angle, which means that that front wheel will be less efficient, which means you're better off going with something, just a big, deep-spoked wheel. That's really the only thing I have to add with with TT wheels, is it's one of those places where, yes, if you're a really good time trialist, you can take a cue from the pros. If you're not a really good time trialist, maybe not. Or if you live in a very windy place, maybe not. Also touching on the disc wheel thing, there are some disc covers. So it's actually you're using a regular like 50 mil rear wheel and they kind of cover the, the wheel with this little cover that makes it look like a disc. And there's been some recent, well, there's been some engineers recently talking about how some of those covers can actually be faster than a lot of the disc wheels. So it saves you money because I think those the covers cost like 50 to $100 versus, you know, multi-thousand dollar rear disc wheel. If time trials aren't your your thing, but you still want to have some equipment to make you go faster, uh, that's a, certainly a, an easier way to go. That's a, Yeah, that's a good one for for people doing stage races and stuff like that. If you're just going to, particularly if you're going to be like riding your road bike or, or whatever, Clip on. Why? Why? Yeah. yeah. Why go buy a disc wheel when you can just buy little covers and you get ninety five percent of the way there, or one hundred and five percent of the way there if they if they are in fact faster. Which which brings up a good point. I mean, if you're depending on what kind of racer you are and how serious you are, you know, two thousand dollar rear wheel may not be the wisest investment. We're uh, talking about bike racers here, though. I, I know. Wise. Wise is not a, a term <laughs> that we <laughs> stop entering time trials. No, like like I said, I think you know if you're gonna if it comes down to do I buy a two thousand dollar disc wheel or do i buy a really good fifteen hundred dollar wheel set a year's worth of coaching right or a year's <laughs> worth of, yeah get faster yeah. yeah i mean you know think real hard about that about what you're really gaining from that rear wheel most of us that are listening to this podcast are probably not performing at that that tony martin level unless you're tony martin are you out there tony <laughs> i hear tony listens yeah, he for does. Sure. Yeah, okay, definitely. Here's where I make every sponsor for for Vela News drop the magazine. But there is a bit of a, a disc as a disc as a disc, meaning a disc makes a big difference in a time trial. But the difference between the bottom of the line disc and the the three thousand dollar disc wheel, especially at the, at our levels, isn't that much. Go cheap. Yeah, do it. Agree. But do it. Like I but think that's it. the biggest thing, <laughs> yeah. right? Like we sit here talking about discs, but they make they make a really, really big difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. And it sucks to show up to a race and get beaten by somebody who you know you're faster than, but just because they have the equipment. And again, we don't want people to be spending money just to spend money, but looking at things and cost per time saved, a disc is actually a pretty important piece of that. If you want a little bit more on where your dollars should be spent if you're trying to go fast. Uh, we did we did a whole episode on that with Dan and Kristen way back last fall. Uh, it's Fast Talk Episode 5, What Would You Do With $2,000? You can look that one up on SoundCloud, iTunes, our website. You can find it all over the place. 
So two other quick gear things to add to time trialing, partially because I haven't been enough of a retrograde today. <laughs> um, there is actually some research showing that shoe covers make you slower. And part of the reason you see tons of pros wearing shoe covers is because they're not in their sponsor's shoes and they don't want anybody to see that. Mm -hmm. So don't obsess the shoe cover. Other really big recommendation is if you are going to a time trial where they are checking your bike to make sure it is UCI legal, go the day before if the officials are going to be there to have your bike checked. Or when you arrive at the race, hopefully an hour and a half or more before the race, go and get it checked because you don't want to be those people, one of those people who shows up five minutes before your start time has your bike checked and discovers that your saddle's too far forward or your handlebars aren't in the right place and you miss your start because you're trying to adjust your bike. Well, and on that, go to the start house early because even if you do go an hour ahead of time to get your bike checked, they can still find something wrong the second time. This happened to me when the US Pro Challenge went super early, Breckenridge time trial, got everything checked out, was great, went and warmed up, got to the start house, something's wrong, right? Like their uh, measuring devices aren't the most stable and... Um, Somewhat imperfect. Yes. So yes, um, yes. If, if you're doing UCI races, just be prepared to bring some tools with you, have your mechanic with you or a friend or a relative come down to the start house with you so that if you need to change your bar position or your saddle position in some way, they can help you because you're already like shaking because you're nervous <laughs> for the race and then trying to like work on it with your tools is not not an easy thing. All right. Well, that is about it for today. I think we've taken enough of everybody's ear time. I hope that was helpful. Uh, we are going to go around the room real quick here with a couple more sort of miscellaneous tips from each of the four of us, starting with Dan. <laughs> I was afraid he was going to say that. Charge your Garmin. Uh, and uh, make sure that it is set up correctly. Double check your settings. You know, you may have lost weight, you may have gained weight, your FTP might have changed, whatever your settings are. Take a look, make sure your Garmin is set the way it needs to be set and is charged and ready to go for your race day. Double check start times. Make sure you know when you need to be at the race and when you need to be at the starting line. Uh, know what your race morning is going to look like. I'd say get to know your equipment. Don't be swapping around a whole ton during the season. It's nice when you really know a good set of wheels and you know exactly how it's going to react during a race. So whether it's a really expensive, whether you have a really expensive setup or it's just what you can afford, just get to know it, use it and feel confident on it. Trevor. If you are like me and you don't like training with gloves, have race gloves because <clears throat> especially if you're in a crit, if you crash, it's a really unpleasant experience taking the palm off your hand. You want those gloves. Uh, Other thing is bring lots of water bottles. Have one to warm up with, have one to cool down with, and enough for the race, and hopefully even have somebody in the feed zone if your race is long enough. I actually travel with like a big water jug, like those soccer, when you were little mm -hmm. and you played soccer and you had those like jug. Giant water know, jug? You ever had that? But, um, Do you have a tray of sliced up oranges? I, for that's, what I keep, that's what I keep telling people about. I always say, talk about sliced up oranges, and people don't get that. Really? So I get that. I think it must be our generation. Yeah, our generation of, of youth soccer. Orange slices. There was a lot of there were a lot of orange slices Youths. floating around. Yeah, youths. Uh, I will finish this off with my final tip, which is it's just bike racing. If you forgot your special tires, it's going to be okay. 
that's my final tip. <laughs> yeah, don't let it get All of this is fun to to think about and it's fun to optimize. But at the end of the day, people have won bike races on worse bikes than yours and with worse gear than yours and with worse clothing than yours and with the wrong tires and just go out there and it's amateur bike racing. Have some fun. That is it. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And be sure to leave us a rating and a comment while you're there. We really, really like that. It helps us reach more people, and we just like your comments. You can also uh, tweet at me, at Kaylee Fretz, or at Velonews, at Velonews. While you're floating around in the podcast universe, be sure to check out our sister podcast, The Vela News Podcast, which also includes myself with takes hot and garbage alike on the week's racing. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash and on Twitter at twitter.com slash Fast Talk is produced by Vela News, which is owned by a competitor group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual and are not always correct, but most of the time. For Trevor Connor, Dan Cavallari, and Kristen Legan, I am Kaylee Fritz. Thank you for listening. Thank you.